0: Episode 216, Getting Rid of Drug Rebates. Chris Sloan from Avalere Health explains the recent HHS proposal.
1: American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value.
0: Alex Azar, who is the Health and Human Services HHS secretary, came out with a proposal recently that effectively halts the practice of pharma manufacturers paying rebates to pharmacy benefit managers, PBMs, as well as Part D plans and Medicaid managed care organizations. This is a big deal. It fundamentally upends the heretofore, not transparent, messy middle of drug pricing. But I'll let Chris Sloan, Associate Principal at Avalier Health, explain. My name is Stacey Richter, and this Relentless Health Value podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Chris.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: As a public policy expert with an economics background, you are the perfect person to discuss the HHS Health and Human Services proposal.
1: This is complicated, but really impactful. Effectively, what they have done is that years ago, there was something called anti-kickback laws passed into existence that basically prevented payments to induce behavior, right? So the idea would be they're trying to prevent a manufacturer, for instance, paying consumers to take their drugs or, you know, things things like that. So there's something called the Federal Anti-Kickback Statute. It has what are called safe harbors, which are things that are allowed under that statute. And so one of them up until this proposed rule was the allowance of things called rebates. And that is when a pharmaceutical manufacturer has an agreement with a health plan or with a pharmacy benefit manager or a PBM and says, we are going to give you X amount off the cost of our drug. Right? It's just a rebate. It's negotiated. It's a way for pharmaceutical manufacturers to get better access to their products in Medicare Part D. And this rule is about Medicare Part D. And that has been the way the Medicare Part D program has worked since its inception. Right, Since the law was passed in 2003, program came into effect uh, in the mid-2000s. Rebates are a really big part of Medicare Part D. It's a really big part of how plans and pharmaceutical manufacturers negotiate as a way to kind of bring down the cost of drugs. And so this rule effectively says those rebates and the way they've been done so far are not allowed.
0: So let me just interject right there. Let's walk through, for example, I'm a pharmaceutical manufacturer and I walk into a PBM with my product portfolio and the PBM says, fine, but I see your list price and I'm not liking it. How does the follow the dollar sort of look at that juncture?
1: That negotiation happens and the the PBM says, I don't like your list price. I'm not going to cover your drug, or I am going to cover your drug, but I'm going to put it as high up, at the highest tier I have, and put the most cost sharing possible. So then a negotiation happens. The two entities, PBM and the manufacturer, agree on a rebate, basically just an amount off the list price.
0: And that rebate is paid immediately?
1: That rebate is oftentimes paid either kind of at the end of the year of the, the planned benefit year, a lot of times they're tied to volume targets. So you want you basically have to sort of have the year play out. And then the plan says, Hey, we had a thousand people use your drug. That meets our agreement. So therefore you owe me twenty percent off the price of the drug.
0: Yeah. So just to kind of clarify that point. So what's gonna happen is is that up front the PBM is gonna pay the list price. So whatever that list price was that the pharmaceutical company set, the PBM's paying the list price up front. It's just they get compensated on the back end based on how much volume. So they pay it up front, but then they get money at the end of the year back.
1: And so in our example, the manufacturer and the PBM have a negotiation to decide on a rebate. The year plan year starts. Effectively, what you do is that I, the patient, go to the pharmacy. I pick up my drug. I pay a cost sharing on that drug. The pharmacy bills the plan or PBM for that drug.
0: All based on the list price, right?
1: All based on list price. So the whole system works on list, and at the back end is basically, you know, it's not a, it's not a kickback, but I mean, effectively, you are basically being reimbursed at the end for whatever the rebate was if you are the PBM. So everything flows through based on list. The patient pays the cost sharing based on list. The pharmacy is reimbursed based on list price.
0: If I have diabetes and my insulin costs a thousand plus dollars a month, but I have a cost sharing, so I pay 20% or 10% or whatever as a cost share of the pharmaceutical drug amount, this is where we get ourselves into a lot of problems because the patient winds up paying a lot because the list price is a lot, even if on the back end, the rebate is 30 or 40%, which would have reduced the, the amount that the PBM is, is ultimately paying.
1: Right, 100%. I mean, that, that, and that is the fundamental issue of why the Department of Health and Human Services has made this change. If you are a patient who takes expensive medications with a lot of rebates on them, you're not getting the direct benefit in that you are not, you're not getting sort of the benefit of paying less for your drugs if that rebate were being passed through to you. And so that's that's really the crux of this proposal is that the administration has said, and HHS has said, we want patients to benefit from rebates directly. And in the example you just used, sometimes that could be a lot. Like that can be a big difference in your cost share. It can be hundreds of dollars over the course of a year that you're paying less if rebates or discounts were passed all the way through to the patient.
0: Let's just follow what happens when that rebate is paid. All right. We're at the end of the year and the pharmacy benefit manager has purchased X number of units of some kind of pharmaceutical product. They do the math and they say, "Okay, pharmaceutical manufacturer, you owe us blah, blah. That's my economic jargon back. That was, it was from, very good. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. In the form of rebates, you know, so you owe us X million dollars. Now I, as the PBM or I, as the plan, I take that money. And what do I do with it?
1: When you're pricing a product, and when, I, when I say product, it's a health plan, right? In Medicare Part D, you are taking those revenues that you're getting from premiums and you're sort of comparing that against the expected costs of what patients in your plan will pay. And you're coming up with a average expected cost for the patient mix that you're projecting to have. It's just sort of basic creating health insurance. And then you're pricing it. You're going to price it at a premium that meets those expected costs and is a little bit above them so that you make a little bit of a margin and can cover your admin costs. And that's how you're pricing it. With rebates, that's just another bit of money that you can use that factors into that equation. So if I make an agreement with manufacturer X. And I know that if I preference their product on a lower tier, I'm going to get additional money back at the end of the year. I can take that into account when I'm pricing my product.
0: That's across the board. For every single patient that, or every single member of that particular plan, the premiums are whatever dollar um, value lower.
1: So it's not going to vary depending on what drugs, and this is how the system works today, it's not going to vary what drugs you take. It's not going to vary whether you use any prescription drugs in the year. Everyone is just going to be down a little bit. So a couple percentage points in their total premium amount compared to what they would have been without rebates.
0: We haven't really discussed the scale of this. I know we've alluded to it in saying that a diabetes drug might have a 30 or 40% rebate, but like, what's the total dollar value that we are talking about here? They
1: keep this a- Information pretty close to the chest, but we do have some information from CMS who published a few years ago, 2014, that showed that there are about $17 billion in rebates paid in the Medicare Part D program in a year. So that was five years ago. So you can imagine that's substantially higher now. And that is a lot of money. I mean, that is not a small percentage of drug spending in the program. Many, many drugs are very substantiated in this program. And not just this program, other insurance markets as well. Because it is the way that manufacturers try to get more volume for their products, right? Like that's that is the way that is used by manufacturers to try and have their drug covered on a lower tier than their competitors, or to avoid a health plan saying, you know what, patients have to step through some other therapy before they get to yours. You know, all those All those techniques that health plans use to try and manage demand and manage utilization, manufacturers are using rebates to try and get around that by offering pricing concessions to the health plans.
0: If I am a pharmaceutical manufacturer, I go to a PBM and I say, look, I want you to put my drug on formulary and I only want patients to pay a $25 copay because I know that if the patient has to pay a $75 copay, that a lot of the patients will go to the pharmacy $75 and then they'll walk out without necessarily filling the script. So if I am a pharmaceutical manufacturer, that is one lost customer. So I go to the pharmacy benefit manager as a pharmaceutical manufacturer and I say, look, you know, how much do I have to pay you? to put my drug on the lowest tier or how much do I have to pay you so I'm the only drug on that tier and all of my competitors have a higher copay, because it is in the best interest of the pharmacy benefit manager, if you're just thinking of monetary incentives, to try to drive as much traffic to those drugs that are paying the highest rebates because then I'm gonna make the most money in that volume discount.
1: That's a hundred percent it. I mean, it is a game of volume and rebates, right? And on the manufacturer side, they are trying to weigh, okay, how much can I give up in terms of price and in given rebates to ensure that I get much higher volume, either relative to my competitors or to bring me parity with my competitors. And then on the PBM side. They are saying, you know, how much will you pay me so that I can get some more money and that obviously the PBMs get to keep a portion of the rebates in the world today and then the rest of it they pass on to their health plan customers. It's really hard to overestimate how big a part of coverage and tiering and what you see on a formulary and what your cost sharing is for drugs is wrapped up in the rebating
0: process. You said something that was kind of interesting. You said this rebate business accounts for $17 billion, but then you put a whole bunch of disclaimers around that. And then you said, Chris, see, I've been paying attention. You said that PBMs can keep a portion of those dollars. If we're not entirely clear on how much money is being trafficked through rebates and the PBMs are keeping a portion of this fuzzy number, Do we even know how much pharmacy benefit managers as the middlemen are getting paid for their services?
1: A lot of this is private and confidential commercial information, right? These These are commercial contracts between entities, and they have really no incentive to say, here's how much I'm getting in rebates. What we do know is that PBMs get to keep, particularly in Part D, you know, somewhere around 5 to 15% of the rebates they negotiate. And that is because they are offering the health plans a service, right? They are that middleman, but that middleman is effectively grouping plans and grouping what is effectively lives, right? Patients, and using the fact that they control access to a large number of people to get bigger discounts or rebates out of pharmaceutical manufacturers. That is sort of the role of PBMs. You know, there's been a lot of debates about PBMs, but effectively, it is just a way to sort of pool leverage over manufacturers. So we know that they keep somewhere in that range, and it's going to vary depending on who their health plan contracts are with. But we know that exists. And then, you know, at the sort of agencies, they know how much is going on in rebates. Like that's information that they have internally. And so when they're proposing a policy like this, they are able to see what it's going to do.
0: I was on the Twitter the other day. The Twitter. The Twitter. Yeah, exactly. And uh, someone had posted a photograph of a billboard on the New York State Thruway. And the billboard said, middlemen have stolen $300 million from the state this year. I mean, basically, it was pointing to this exact issue from people who were not super happy with PBMs. Let's get into what you just teed up so well. The PBM side of the story is they're pulling leverage if I am a small health plan and I go directly to a pharmaceutical manufacturer and I try to negotiate my own special contract, that the pharmaceutical manufacturer is going to stump all over me and, and make the price higher than right. if the PBM with all of this leverage and, you know, it's almost like a group purchasing organization at some level, you know, like you're stacking together a lot of small leverage and it winds up being a hefty, aggregated right. power. Do you believe that? Do you believe that if PBMs can no longer take that rebate, that ultimately the plans are going to pay the price because now the pharmaceutical manufacturers can just charge the list price and they don't have to pay a rebate on the back end?
1: I think, you know, going to the point of the middleman idea, I mean, just because you're in the middle doesn't mean you're not providing value. And I, I think that at the end of the day, PBMs are paid by health plans to get them rebates and lower their drug costs. If they were not doing that to a point where the fees for the PBMs was worth it, the health plans would not pay them or they would just pay lists. So there's clearly value in there for PBMs. I think there's been some debate about, you know, what share of rebates they keep. But I think it's it's pretty clear that when commercial health plans who have very specific financial interests, right, in, in lowering healthcare costs are contracting with PBMs to lower healthcare costs, it sort of follows that the health plans realize that there's some service or some value being provided there. But the question of sort of the future of the PBM model and also just the future of negotiation with health plans in a world of this proposed rule is a valid question because one of the pieces of this proposed rule said PBMs for this service are no longer allowed to be paid based on the price of the drugs for which they're negotiating. So that effectively means that right now, let's say a PBM keeps 10% of the rebates, under that 10% gets bigger with bigger rebates, and it is obviously easier to get bigger rebates off of expensive drugs, right? Just you know, 10% of a $100,000 drug is more than 10% of a $100 drug. What this rule would prohibit is, health, is PBMs being paid by health plans, percentages of what they're getting out of manufacturers and instead are going to have to be paid on fixed fees we just pay you like a lump sum, right, to negotiate for us, or we pay you sort of a fixed fee per product you negotiate, or we pay you a fixed fee. I mean, there's different ways to do it, but it can't be based on the price of the product. And that fundamentally disrupts the way PBMs have worked forever, right? And that's, you know, commercial market is still going to keep rebates, that'll still be happening most likely in the commercial market. But on the part D side, PBMs are going to have to really completely change how they're reimbursed. And those contracts with health plans are going to have to completely change. One of the things the administration is hoping out of this, or at least thinking about, is that that system of various players in the payment change getting to keep a percentage of rebates has led to higher list prices so that manufacturers can give bigger rebates. And then people along the supply chain can keep a percentage of that
0: let me just interrupt you there just to underscore the point that you just made, which is that this is, if you start to think about it, gives every incentive for a pharmaceutical manufacturer to push up list prices. Because if PBMs, I was talking to somebody the other day who was worked for one of the largest pharmaceutical manufacturers. And I'm going to say it was something like 75 percent. And I'm remembering off the top of my head. So give a standard deviation of uh, several points here. It was something like 75% of revenue was coming from the top three PBMs. So think about that. Is this large pharmaceutical manufacturer going to want to rock any boats? If the three PBMs say, look, whether they say it explicitly, which I seriously doubt they do, but if the whole conversation is about how big of a rebate can you give us, then what inadvertently happens is now pharmaceutical manufacturers kind of have to raise their prices in order to deliver a bigger rebate to their biggest customers, And I, under no circumstances, want to be an apologist for large pharma companies, (laughs) but it certainly is a factor to consider there, especially as we start to contemplate what the result is going to be. You know, so if you don't have those large PBMs agitating, not only agitating for kind of higher list prices, but then returning a bigger dollar volume on the back end, net net, which factor will prevail?
1: (laughs) Right, right, and it's a good question, and I think this is. The administration has been talking about that there are perverse incentives in this system, and you've just identified it, right? One of the ways that you can maximize rebates is by just disc- getting large rebates off of a high list price. And we know that brand manufacturers consistently over time raise their list prices. So there's a very clear trend. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean they're net prices, and I think that's the important caveat, and you were just making this point. You can have a higher and higher, higher list price, but if your rebate is going up and up and up each time, you can actually have a relatively flat net price it's going to be fascinating to see what happens. Now, there there are some interesting economic incentives that this rule creates. I am not in the camp of this reduces or substantially reduces incentives to negotiate lower net prices because at the end of the day, PBMs are still going to be employed by health plans and the metric of that employee, the metric of your success as a PBM is going to be lowering net price on drugs. and even though PBMs are not going to be able to keep a share of the rebates, and even though potentially that sort of perverse incentive of higher list, higher rebate structure is going to go away with this proposed rule, that doesn't mean that PBMs won't still have an incentive because they're being paid to do that by their health plan customers to try and lower net prices. And so we are in a bit of a fuzzy situation because that transition is going to be fascinating. And most importantly in that transition, what happens to leverage? Do manufacturers get a bit more leverage in this situation relative to PBMs, or is it the other way around? The other really fascinating thing on this, just sort of like a fun intellectual (laughs) exercise of of what happens here, is that when a manufacturer right now gives a rebate, that does not directly pass through to their customer or to their patient who's using their drug. It goes through to the plan, the plan uses it to lower premium, but it doesn't necessarily go, you know, if you're a pharmaceutical manufacturer A, it doesn't go to pharmaceutical manufacturer A's patients. It goes kind of to everybody in that plan. Now, if I am a pharmaceutical manufacturer and this proposed rule is, in fact, finalized, if I give a discount, I know that discount means that my patients are paying less, right? They're paying less in cost sharing or they're paying less to the pharmacy. And that's an interesting new incentive because we know that manufacturers have been getting absolutely killed in the public and on Capitol Hill about their pricing and one of their responses has been this issue, right? That we are giving big rebates. It's just not patients' dishearts. But now, another way that you can combat that or another way that you can try and increase volume and utilization of your products is that you can actually make your product cheaper at the pharmacy or rather, and you know, they've always been able to do that, They've always been able to lower list. But now, your actual negotiations with plans or PBMs, if you give an extra 5% in that negotiation, that means your patient gets. A cheaper drug or pays a little bit less at the pharmacy. And that's going to be a fascinating new incentive that just hasn't, those two things haven't been tied together.
0: Peering in on that moment. So yeah. in this new model, patient goes to the pharmacy. Say we're talking about insulin and it's the list price is $1,300 or whatever right. it is. In the past, the PBM was collecting for 400, 500 bucks on the back end. But now the pharmaceutical manufacturer will have the, it's like an instant rebate.
1: So the way it would work is that all of these contracts now have to be determined, and the price of the drug has to be set before the beginning of the year. Say we're heading into 2020, all those contracts between the health plan and the manufacturer and the PBM and the manufacturer have to be done and set before the year starts, and they have to have picked the price. That is what the patient pays at the pharmacy. So you, the patient, walk into a pharmacy on January 15th, and you give them your insurance card, and they say, oh, you're with health plan A's HMO, you know, select care, whatever. They look that up and they say, "Okay, this drug for you is $60." And so therefore, if you have a say a 10% co-insurance on that, your cost sharing at the pharmacy would be 6 bucks. Now, that drug last year because that or this year, I guess 2019, because that discount or that rebate wasn't being passed through to you, would have been in the pharmacist system $100 and your 10% co-insurance would have been cost you 10 bucks at the farm. Or if you're in the deductible phase, you're just going to pay that cost of the drug.
0: I can see that something interesting could conceivably happen. And I'm I'm pretty sure, Chris, that you know the answer to this. Here's a, a potential consequence. Using the example that you just gave, where the original price was, the original list was 100 bucks, but there was a $40 rebate. So in the past, that $40 would have gone back to the plan, And then that $40 would be put in a pool that ultimately would be used to offset costs. And because, as you were talking about earlier, insurance products are priced, you know, like you figure out what your costs are, you add a margin and that's divided by the number of members in your plan. And there you go. That's your premium. All of those rebate dollars are, like I said, being put into a pool that then all patients in all members in that plan are kind of benefiting from. So if we've got $40 is, you know, a nice example, but say we're talking about some sort of immunotherapy or something like that, where the rebate 40% of the drug price is literally tens of thousands of dollars, it's going to reduce the price for someone who is taking that expensive medication. I could certainly see. But then that $10,000 is now missing. It's not going to offset premiums. So therefore, premiums across the board without that cost offset would start to rise. Are we going to run into a situation where you've got certain patients who are clapping because their drug costs went down, but then the premiums go up enough that it doesn't matter?
1: That's the trade-off. Right. And we've been talking sort of about the benefits of, of this proposal for patients. But the trade off is premiums are going to go up. And the administration acknowledges that in the proposed rule. They paid two actuarial firms to, to actually calculate this. So they actually have some estimates in there and effectively come up with somewhere between about roughly like a 3 to 6 to $7 a month increase in premiums as a result of this proposal. Now, that does not say, seem like very much, particularly if you're used to sort of what you pay for commercial insurance. But you have to remember that in Medicare Part D, premiums are really low. Premiums are in sort of the $20 a month, $30 a month, sometimes even less than that dollar a month premium. So this, you know, this works out to something potentially between like 10 and 20% increase in monthly premiums. On the flip side, they expect that this could reduce patient cost sharing somewhere around $4 to $8 a month on average. The trick with that, and this is the point you just made, I think, very well, is that that is not everybody's cost sharing goes down by four to eight dollars a month. That premium number is. Every basically everybody's premium goes up by that amount. But on the cost sharing side of it, that savings, while that's an average, is really going to be very heavily concentrated in people who use expensive drugs or heavily rebated drugs. And so if you have cancer or you have like an autoimmune disease or you have you're on some of the very new therapies in some areas you know, you have diabetes, you have things like that. That's where the savings will come. Like those are the people who will really benefit from this because their product they are taking are heavily rebated and they're expensive. So you're getting a big drop. But if you a couple generics, you will just see a premium increase and really probably not benefit at all from lower cost share. So
0: it's basically just like every other <laughs> insurance model where the healthy people are subsidizing the sick people that year. <laughs> Very
1: much so. Yes, exactly. So
0: right. this is not like some sort of, wow, it's so different. It's actually very much the same.
1: It, it is. It is very much the same. We were talking earlier, like this is a monumental change in the payment side and negotiation side. At the end of the day, we're talking about a 3 to 5 to $6 premium increase a month, which, you know, for some people is not in... I don't want to sort of understate... That the effect that can have on, on some seniors. But we're not talking astoundingly large amounts of money here in higher premiums. But there are going to be some folks who use expensive medications who could see you know, $1,000 less in, in drug payments a year. I guess the way to think about this is that it is going to really benefit a small group of people and benefit them financially to an extent that can make a real difference, and that it is going to very moderately or mildly increase the costs for everyone on the premium side.
0: I think sometimes the most interesting part of an issue is who's taking what side. So, obviously, from a PBM perspective, they are against this proposal, I'm going to assume.
1: Yes, yes, that's very correct. They are against this proposal. Health plans are also against this proposal. On the plan side, the plans are basically saying look, you have been, you being the administration, have been talking about high drug prices for a long time. You have been talking that and been noting that. Uh, manufacturers have been increasing their list prices. If manufacturers want to lower patient cost sharing, they could have lowered their list prices because that's what the cost sharing is based of. And what health plans came back with on this in a statement, and they said, this is not addressing drug pricing. It's just moving some of the money in the supply chain around.
0: What's Pharma doing? Is Pharma lobbying for this? Keeping in mind that Alex Azar, of course, comes from, he was the former CEO of Lilly.
1: He was, yeah. Yeah. And pharma is for this. Their point is basically like, look, we give all these rebates and our patients don't directly benefit. We are getting killed in the press about how much our drug prices are going up, but we are rebating in some cases really high amounts. It's just you, the patient, don't pay your cost sharing based off of that. You're paying it based off list. And so this policy allows patients to actually get some benefits from what we're doing on a contracting side.
0: Let me ask you this, Chris. I got to say, PBM's reaction, not a shock. Pharma's reaction, also not a shock. What's interesting, though, to me, is the plan's reaction. And sometimes what I have found, trying to follow the dollar in healthcare is that there are, understatement of the year, perverse incentives. So one really good example of that is the Affordable Care Act limited, for example, health plan profits to 20%. Right. So obviously... If you're trying to raise the absolute dollar amount of the profit that you're making as a health plan, you're gonna hope that costs go up because 20% of a bigger number is a bigger number. Right. (laughs) Weirdly, everyone thinks that plans are incented to reduce costs, but actually in this day and age, they benefit when costs go up. So, you know, you've got the person that's supposed to be negotiating for lower prices on behalf of the patient who's actually incented to see those costs go up. It's no great shock that. Healthcare costs have gone up like a hockey stick in the past years. What are the perverse incentives for plans? Because I feel like there are some. Like, what are the plans? I mean, I know some of them are owned by PBM, so they obviously have a clear champion. They definitely have a favorite horse in this game. But are there other things that we might, that might not be immediately evident that a plan is considering in their calculus that maybe we're not thinking of?
1: One of the things that plans, I think, have been dealing with for a while is this question of, you know, how do you set your formula? And I think, particularly in Medicare Part D, there's a very interesting dynamic here in that when Medicare Part D was created, it allowed standalone drug plans, prescription drug plans, Part D plans, that were offered to patients uh, who were in traditional Medicare fee-for-service. So you have... For many patients, And there's Medicare Advantage that, that offers sort of both drug benefit and medical benefit. But right now, if you're not in Medicare Advantage, you have sort of traditional Medicare fee-for-service and you have Medicare Part D. And plans in Medicare Part D don't pay medical costs, right? They are just, just prescription drug plans. That creates interesting incentives because then you don't really care about the medical costs. And you don't really care about ensuring that the medicines you're covering are reducing medical costs sort of on the other end, right? Or they may be reducing hospitalizations or they're reducing things that could cost you more elsewhere because you don't pay for those, the federal government and, and Medicare fee-for-service stuff. So that isn't to say that plans don't look at that, and they definitely do. They have, they have P&T committees, they look at the efficacy of drugs, they look at sort of the value of drugs. But at the same sense, they're not, at least in the Medicare Part D plans, they're not on the hook for those medical costs. That creates interesting incentives because then you're really just looking at the price of the drug. And then I think, you know, one of the benefits of Part D, it is a individual choice at the consumer level. So consumers come in, they say, I want a Part D plan. Many of them are buying based on price. And so on the Part D side, they are really, really incented to keep their premiums low as a way to attract additional enrollment. And so that creates a very interesting mix of incentives for plans to really aggressively keep costs down. I think that has led... Somewhat to higher and higher and higher rebates each year.
0: What I'm cutting onto here is that your average senior is going to look at, you know, when they're evaluating plans, they go on CMS.gov and they do that plan finder. What they're focusing on is the monthly premium. And maybe right. they're not sophisticated enough to look at what the downstream costs are going to be. Obviously, the advantage of huge rebates is the bigger the rebate, the lower the premium that you can mm-hmm. charge as a result.
1: I don't know if I necessarily say that they're not sophisticated. It's just that you know, sometimes you don't know what drug you're going to take. You know, something happens to you, you get a different prescription or you're suddenly you're diagnosed with cancer and now you need an expensive oncology med. Part of it is that and part of it is just that, uh, to your point, I think health literacy is not as high as it could be. And when you say this is not just a, a senior citizen issue. This is an issue across every health insurance market in the United States. And you know, you just naturally gravitate to the easiest piece of information to understand about a plan, which is the premium. And that's easy to figure out. I pay that amount each month. And it's a lot harder to explain to someone what a deductible is or what a coinsurance is compared to a copay and things like that.
0: In that way, I suppose it's not a shock, the plan's reaction. Yeah, it's not a
1: shock, but I I think we also don't we shouldn't gloss over this is not directly impacting pharmaceutical manufacturers. Their point that they are making and that they've been making for a while in many different markets is that uh, pharmaceutical manufacturers have been raising prices aggressively over time and the health plans are basically saying like, you aren't fixing that. You're, you're sort of painting this as a win for patients, which it is, uh, at least the ones who use drugs. And you know, you're know, you talking about the person incentives around rebates, but at the end of the day, you have not solved sort of what they see as the underlying issue, which is manufacturer pricing behavior.
0: So, Chris, if someone is interested in learning more about what Avalier Health is up to, where can they go for additional information?
1: Oh, it's a great question. You can go to our uh, newly redesigned website at avalier.com. That's A-V-A-L-E-R-E.
0: I have been speaking with Chris Sloan, Associate Principal at Avalier Health. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today, Chris. Thank you for having me.